Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again, flying this FTL-equipped, state-of-the-art, galaxy-hopping ship solo once again as we roll on farther into Sci-Fi September. Boy, what a way to describe that ship, I suppose. Um, the intros have been very strange so far. You know what? I think I'm just going to keep making them stranger as this month goes on. Uh, but we are moving on again in t- further to Sci-Fi September. With uh, I think this will be like our first true mini-sode of the month so far. Uh, the first episode, the intro episode, was uh, <clears throat> you know came in, clocked in right at uh, about an hour. I think a little over an hour. Um, this one should should be a little bit shorter. In fact, I'm going to pull a quick audible on what I already previously said. Instead of, um, this is originally going to be about radio plays, sci-fi radio plays in early cinema. Instead, since I am going to be doing a movie review towards the end of the month, I figured I might as well save the movie discussion uh, for that episode. So this is going to shorten this episode up a little bit as we are going to talk about sci-fi radio plays um, and how they... Uh, Boy, the radio play is such an interesting sort of medium, an interesting entertainment medium that is still alive and well today, though obviously not uh, to the same degree that it was in the uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So that's what we're that's what we're going to dive into today. Now, obviously, our focus is on again sci-fi. Obviously, it's sci-fi September, but you can't get into the radio plays without talking about <clears throat> without talking about talking about the early radio dramas um and these early radio dramas you know cover basically the basically you can kind of chart them from about 1920 through the through through the mid 1950s really would have been kind of the golden age uh, of the radio drama and that's when about by that point in time uh cinema fully eclipses the radio drama and so tv begins to uh, move past it as well um, but, uh, there's a, there's a nice, uh, there's a solid about 20 year run, um, where the radio drama is very popular. Uh, but Manny, when you really think about it, it's such a quick rise and fall of an entertainment medium. I guess, I guess, again, it hasn't really completely fallen, but in terms of its popularity, um, you know, it, it the, it, it, you know, in the middle of like, in the middle of the 1930s, uh, some of these some of these radio dramas would have been just as popular as like people turning into episodes uh, episodes of The Office or episodes of Game of Thrones, right? Like we're talking about like that level of popularity, maybe not quite that level of popularity, but the 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 equivalency is there. <clears throat> so it's um so it's a pretty quick so the radio dramas have a pretty quick um sort of have a pretty brief prime, I guess, as an entertainment medium in both the United States and. Uh, and uh, in the rest of the world, uh, mostly in Europe and England, obviously, but um, there is, um, but like I said, they they still persist to this day, in which we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, getting back into getting back into the the early part here, um, these radio dramas start. It's there's sort of a there's sort of not I wouldn't say conflicting origins, but conflicting um, sort of which what is actually the very beginning point for a radio drama uh one because it's it's very possible that the two that i'm going to talk about here in a minute could have been predated by something else we just don't have records of it because record keeping just wasn't the same as it was you know especially in the entertainment mediums the record keeping from like 1920 or prior isn't the same as stuff that gets cataloged now um but at least for sure you can mark the beginning of the radio dramas or radio plays um you can at least 
charted to the 1920s. And it's possible that the first radio play um, was from 1921 by KDKA in Pittsburgh. And they aired a really, and I think this is where we have the um, possibly the, the discrepancy here. I'll explain that in a little bit. They air something called a rural line on education. Um, and this depicted a telephone conversation between two farmers that continuously got interrupted by others wanting wanting to use the phone line, uh, because back then it, there was there weren't like many phone lines, right? Like there you know there weren't cell phones, obviously, but even the even the telephone was in its infancy at that point in time, and you had like one line in a lot of cities. Um, or maybe a few lines that people could use to talk to one another. And, you know, thinking about, like, the people on the on the switchboard and stuff like that, the, you know, those are the people that would connect you to the appropriate line so you could complete your call. And and even in this case, in 1921, even earlier than that sort of um, uh, telephone switchboard technology. Um, so, or like, at least the way that it gets depicted, the way you think about it. So 1921, a rural line on education is the first, um, at least possibly the first instance of a radio play. Um, and that would have been obviously, like I said, in Pittsburgh in the United States in 1921. Um, or you could chart it to 1924, a play called a comedy of danger. And this is from the BBC in London. Um, and this is a, about a, about three people trapped in a Welsh coal mine. So of course it's called a comedy of danger, but um, it is actually it is actually pretty funny. Um, but it's about three people trapped in a Welsh coal mine, and their kind of humorous outcomes um, when they try to escape. Um, you know, it's uh, a comedy of danger would be called a comedy of errors. Basically, that's kind of what this play, this radio play, was about. Um, and it was interactive, which is pretty interesting. Uh, listeners were asked to turn off the lights to get the full experience, uh, kind of like a a very very early uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? Um, in fact, the the opening line, uh, the opening line of this play is the lights have gone out. Um, obviously, these people are trapped in a mine, um, so the <clears throat> so the idea was to get people fully immersed in this atmosphere of what it would be like to be in stuck in a completely dark mine. So you were asked to turn out the lights, and this is also you know to kind of add to this effect. This is one of the first um, I should say to add to this uh, immersion. This is one of the first radio plays that had full-blown sound effects. Um, and 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 I'm going to make the dis- quick distinction here. This play had a score, um, not just musical interludes. There were other, um, there were other uh, radio plays that would come later that have musical interludes, right? It's kind of think of like almost like a variety show uh, from like the 1960s where they'd have sketches and, and things like that. That same kind of idea, but in between you'd have music or there would just be sort of a, um, you know, a general soundtrack to whatever was happening in the background. Whereas A Comedy of Danger had a score that went along with, this, you know, from scene to scene. It's only like about 30 minutes long, I think. Um, but the score kind of went along with it the way it goes along with like a modern movie to help enhance the, you know, the feeling of tension, right? Like in a, in like a, a horror movie when the, when we get those like, those heavy longer strings or something in a, in a scene that's supposed to uh, build the suspense. They had the same kind of um, score in a comedy of danger. So the reason why you can kind of, I think you can consider either one, the start of radio dramas and radio plays. The 1921 play in Pittsburgh, a rural, a rural line in education is significantly more of a sketch. 
Like it's it's not nearly as long, or it doesn't really have the complete. Um, it doesn't have the complete, you know, beginning, middle, end of a story. Um, it obviously is a story. You know, I'm not saying that it's not complete. It's just a very different kind of. Um, you know, it's you wouldn't call the things that happen on Saturday Night Live TV shows or movies as are sketches, and that's really what this was like a sketch. Whereas a comedy of danger is more like an episode of TV. Um, that at least that's probably the best way to think about it. Um, you know, it has a full beginning, middle, and end. There's a full score. Um, you know, like as I said before, so it there's it's really more of a complete sort of a complete sort of version of a story of a story versus what a rural line in education was. So that's why there's like at least a little bit of a distinction between uh, between these two, and why you could probably point to either one as kind of being the the beginning point of of radio plays. But again, it's also very possible that some radio station years prior did a radio play that has, you know, was never kept. Uh, you know, the records of it were never kept. There's no, uh, there's no recording of it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's not, I shouldn't say it's hard to tell, but these are, these are the two best guesses as to when the radio plays actually start. Um, <clears throat> and you know, it's, should talk about a few of the notable radio plays um, at this point in time. Um, oops, sorry, I lost my notes there for a second. Um, starting off with the ever ever ready the ever ready hour. Excuse me. Um, this is essentially uh, like an early soap opera, and I say that not because it was you know not, not because it was like super dramatic or anything like that, but it was a kind of serialized short form story, uh, short form play. That was used to sell the Ever Ready products. I believe they're batteries. Um, so the plays were, the short plays were constructed around selling um, selling batteries, just like the early soap operas were constructed around selling soap. Uh, hence the name. Uh, this also um, later in, in a little bit later on in the in this period of radio dramas, um, we have Gunsmoke. You've probably heard of it before because Gunsmoke makes the jump to television. Uh, with James Arness, and I know I'm forgetting some other people, that, some other names that were in that. Uh, but it started in, I believe it was either 1951 or 52, as a radio play before jumping in 1955 to television, b- becoming a huge smash hit for 20 years and 635 hour-long episodes. That is incredible to think about uh, nowadays. There is... No way a TV show would ever run for either of those numbers. Uh, don't really make sense uh, in terms of a TV show running, you know, something that's not a soap opera or not animated, like uh, you know, like a The Simpsons or something like that. Uh, twenty hour long drama episodes. Tw- excuse me, twenty years worth of hour long drama episodes. Six hundred and thirty five episodes. That's insane. But uh, that's where Gunsmoke started. It was a it was a radio play. And then there was a there was a um, radio hour called Suspense, and this was an uh, anthology series of thrillers, mysteries, um, you know, detective stories, that kind of stuff. Um, really, kind of showing that uh, even early on, we were kind of branching out from uh, the, the really right away, I should say, that um, the creators of these radio plays were figuring out new ways to branch out and new ways to kind of maximize uh, what they could do with the medium. The same way that, you know, early filmmakers really right away began kind of tinkering with, uh, you know, how you could, what you could do with movies and things. So that same sort of, that same sort of creativity was already really starting early on 
with these radio plays. All right, now let's get into the stuff that we do want to talk about that we are very specifically talking about here, the sci-fi radio plays. The first known sci-fi radio play is called R.U.R., um, Rossum's Universal Robots, and it is based off the 1920 play, uh, believe it or not, by uh, Czech writer, uh, I believe you pronounce his name, Karel Chapik, uh, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, this is one of the most influential plays of the era. It was reprinted in over 30 languages. Um, you know, the, the play was put on all over Europe. Um, and this play, um, R.U.R., gives us the word robot. Um, it was a Czech, from the Czech word, uh, I believe it's robata. Uh, robata or robati, I can't remember. I think it's robata. Um, which is sort of a, um, it's not a exact, it, it's not an exact um, translation necessarily, but it's like an implied translation that in Czech, robata means forced labor. Um, so even uh, even our even some of our first sci-fi plays that predict that uh, depicted robots predicted and uh, I guess an age-old sort of uh, trope of these uh, uh, of these robot and, and artificial intelligence movies that the you know the the robots are servants, they're slaves, they're forced labor, and of course um, in this in this particular play there is a robot uprising. I'll give you the exact um, synopsis here. Um, the play begins at a factory that makes artificial people called uh, Robati, robots, uh, whom humans have created from synthetic organic matter. Um, the robots may be mistaken for human, and they can think for themselves. Initially, they're happy to work for humans, and then the robots revolt and cause the extinction of the human race. Kind of an interesting note there that the robots were made out of uh, organic matter. They're, I mean, they're essentially they're essentially synthetically created people. Um, so it, they didn't have a word for it back then necessarily, uh, but we would call them androids um, as opposed to robots. Now, android, the A-N being the, the part of like anthropomorph, anthropomorphic, meaning, you know, like a hum, of human nature, of human design, human shape, whatever. And then the droid for, um, you know, robot, I guess. I don't know. Um, but uh, so this this version of a robot, in fact, our, I guess our first one of our first real versions of this kind of robot. Very interesting that they are actually um, they are actually closer to what we what we would think about now in modern sci-fi as like some kind of um, you know advanced artificial intelligence, um, you know, hum, very human-like. Um, <clears throat> and I, you know, I, again, I just think it's very interesting that our first one of our first sci-fi concepts for robots has them as slaves. Just very, very interesting how these sort of, um, these sort of themes have, uh, rippled their way through time. Um, you know, it rippled their way through time and all sorts of different versions, but there is still kind of a very similar root idea, um, there in, in this kind of writing. Um, the first known radio production of RUR, uh, excuse me, the first known production of RUR's radio play, um, was at on Tufts University, Tufts University, it's in Boston, uh, Radio WGI, which I believe has been defunct for quite a while now, and this was in 1924. Um, so that was like the first known one. Again, who knows if that was, if this is accurate or not. Um, this is kind of what research tells us, that uh, 1924 Tufts University Radio um, put on the first radio play production of RUR. Um, the wider debut, probably the more, I guess, you know, you call that the, uh, you know, the, in, you call that the, the soft opening or maybe the, this in the 
in select cities kind of thing that we do with some movies. Uh, but like the the mass release, the the broad release debut of RUR um, would come in 1937 on the National Broadcasting Network, which I'm fairly certain is the defunct NBC radio network, which actually just went defunct not that long ago, probably 20 some years ago. Um, but that would, yeah, that was in 1937. Um, a year before we get to something significantly more famous that we will talk about uh, with a little bit more depth here. Here's some other notable, notable sci-fi radio plays from this, uh, from this era. We have A Trip to the Moon. Uh, this is based off of the incredibly influential movie of the same name. You probably are familiar with the movie, even if you don't know the title, Trip to the Moon. It's, uh, you've seen the picture probably of the, the man on the moon uh, with a bullet in his eye. Um, that comes from, that's one of the most famous shots from A Trip to the Moon. Uh, but uh, pretty much, I guess that would have been about 20 years later, um, they, uh, this, they turned this into a radio play that was very successful. Um, something that we talked about in the last episode, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, uh, based on the comic strip. Um, this is one of the, this is one of the, if not the very first sci-fi radio, radio serials, um, wildly successful. Um, as I said, it, it was so successful, it spawned, uh, a, an immediate competitor in, uh, Flash Gordon, which also became a radio play. Uh, although Flash Gordon beat Buck Rogers to, um, to TV and cinema. Uh, obviously though, they've had, uh, there have been Buck Rogers and, uh, and Flash Gordon, um, adaptations. Uh, since the 1930s, but Buck Rogers in the 25th century, uh, one of our first sci-fi radio serials. And then uh, let's skip ahead again into the 1950s, and you have um, you have two show, one show, but it, it changed names. We'll get into that. Dimension X um, would then become X minus one, and you could think of this as um, the Twilight Zone or you know the Outer Limits. Um, this uh, it was definitely an anthology series that um, adapted the the works of the likes of Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Heinlein, Asimov, uh, Ray Bradbury, a lot more. This was um, this definitely would have been a lot of people's kind of if they weren't if they weren't reading um, those sci-fi books at, at that point in time. Uh, this would have been a lot of people's first introduction to a lot of the seminal sci-fi writers, uh, the big three sci-fi writers. Um, Dimension X, uh, which would later become X minus one, would have been that sort of first, would have been that first exposure. And also kind of interesting to note that probably would have been, you know, without, um, it just kind of, I probably should have tried to listen to one of these, uh, r one of these adaptations, um, from this particular channel or this particular radio hour. But, uh, I would also guess that the, you know, considering the source material, this would have been um, a significantly more mature and philosophical sort of um, philosophical sort of entry into the radio play series compared to Buck Rogers. You know, like we said in the last episode, um, you know, talking about how um, <clears throat> how Heinlein, um, you know, matures mature sci has, is writing more mature sci-fi versus you know the the more kind of pulpy adventure sci-fi, which is there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, Dimension X and X minus one really seem like they would have been, that would have been your radio version of this mature sci-fi writing that was uh, really coming into its own at this point in time. All right, so let's move on a little bit farther here. Uh, we're going to move to 1938. I already mentioned that RUR uh, had a had a wide successful uh, debut on the National Broadcasting Network in 1937. 
Uh, but it was 1938 where radio plays really have probably their high water moment. Um, and you probably already, maybe, maybe you already know what I'm talking about if you're a fan of sci-fi. Uh, that's because in 1938, the single most influential radio play of all time is put on the air and on Halloween night, 1938, uh, when Orson Welles put on The War of the Worlds. Um I, when I say that this is single, the single most influential radio play of any genre of all time, it's not even an exaggeration. Um, this is also one of the most... This also, you could really think about this possibly being the most important pop culture moment for sci-fi ever. Um, it's very possible that if this particular radio play doesn't cause the sort of fervor that it did in 1938, that it's very possible that sci-fi is shaped the shape of sci-fi really doesn't really i shouldn't say doesn't really take off because we were just a couple of not even a couple decades away from some really um influential writers but i think i think the way that certain i think the way that certain things would have played out in in the world of sci-fi certainly these radio plays wouldn't have become as popular um sci-fi radio plays wouldn't have become as popular and i think that the I think that a lot of imagery in sci-fi would have been vastly different had War of the Worlds not been such an important moment in, in pop culture history. Um, <clears throat> so just to kind of get back to it, Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater on the air um, staged this um, staged this adaptation, this radio play adaptation of H.G. Wells' um, War of the Worlds, which was from, I, I want to say it's the late 1800s, I do not have the year sitting here in front of me. Um, but they kind of as a, well, they didn't really have anything else to do. Um, even though that this, even though this, this play becomes absolutely critical in pop culture and, you know, maybe one of the most talked and really puts Orson Welles on the map for that matter. Um, the Mercury theater on air was, it wasn't like this was a juggernaut um, type of, radio hour or you know or i guess uh, I, I don't know if it was a full-fledged radio hour every night i think this might have been more of like a weekend program type of deal um but regardless the point being that like the 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 audience for this wasn't that massive we're not talking about this didn't go over bbc radio right this is went over something significantly smaller um so it, it the it's almost kind of like a, a just a confluence of like happy accidents that this thing even kind of got to where it was because we're talking again we're talking about not a super popular program um on a on halloween night um in uh in new jersey in the new york new jersey area and it just you know it just happened to hit sort of the right right place at the right time really um the the so there's always these uh, talks about the reports of like the wide the widespread panic right and that's something that has definitely grown um over the years in pop culture lore um because the pot the widespread panic really isn't that significant there were definitely people who were legitimately worried by what they were hearing on the radio um you had calls to police departments fire departments other emergency numbers things like that P you know people left their neighborhoods uh in new jersey and were trying to uh, in the New York, New Jersey area, and we're like going to you know talk to neighbors, 
uh, down the street to talk to police, authority figures, anyone they could talk to to figure out what the hell was going on. There certainly was a little bit of unrest and a little bit of panic, but the idea that, like, you know, you heard stuff that there were, you know, over over the years, um, you've, you've, there have been stories of people committing suicide or people killing other people or, um, you know, things of that nature. And none of that happened in the original, during the original um, night, Halloween night in 1938. But there definitely was, there definitely was some panic caused by this. Um, there was enough unrest that Orson Welles had to go on, I believe I believe the Mercury Theater Hour would have been carried on CBS uh, because Orson Welles went on CBS the next day to make a, CBS radio the next day to make a public statement verifying that the radio play was just a play. Um, uh, even though there were some disclaimers for it, uh, you know, prior to the broadcast, and I think even um, a few days before the broadcast, there were also some notifications that they were going to be doing an adaptation of War of the Worlds. Um, so it is, um, it's, it's, so, you know, there was, uh, some, un- there were, there was some panic, some unrest enough, again, enough so that Orson Welles actually had to address it directly. Um, but nothing, nothing really got that out of hand. Um, again, just, just more of those, those stories from, from early pop culture and, you know, have just kind of, have just kind of grown in size and scope. You know, it's like the, it's like the people that are there to witness some historic sports event, you would have sworn that the stadium held like 3 million people because everyone was there. Um, it's that kind of thing. Um, so, and it's just, it is really funny to think about this now, um, right? Like, it just seems so quaint to, it seems so quaint to sort of deliver um, this sort of, it seems so quaint that people were sort of disturbed by this mechanism, uh, this delivery mechanism for, um you know, for for a sci-fi, uh, you know, for sci-fi radio play, for a horror radio play, and but I guess you know, you go back to the time in 1938. People then really, you know, the all entertainment forms really hadn't matured that much, especially radio plays, especially movies, things like that. They hadn't really grown to where they would grow to in just a few decades. Um, you know, we've I know we I know Chem and I talked about it when we were talking about movies from like the 1920s and 30s and how really in just like two to three decades how vastly different movies are by the 1950s and 60s like wildly different um and you can think about that sort of thing like take that sort of same thing the the art form was very immature still at this point so people really hadn't experienced something of this nature um the sort of true to life uh the true to life sort of fiction um I don't, i'm not sure i'm saying that terribly but where the where the story is presented through more um familiar real life channels um definitely would have been a little bit shocking at this point in time um think about it so here's here's the better way to think about it the more clean way to think about it right uh just gonna take some movies and stuff night of the living dead we get a lot of the information about what's going on outside of the house that they're boarding themselves up into over the radio Right. Like that's where they're getting their information about people coming back from the dead and killing the living. Um, Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know, the comedy homage uh, of Night of the Living Dead and all all things zombie does the same thing as well. Giving you the insight that uh, I believe it was a comet um, that passed overhead or, you know, a satellite or a broken satellite that passed overhead, something like that. That is sort of your clue as to, you know, what kicks what kicks off the, the zombie uh, apocalypse in Shaun of the Dead. Um, 
there was a viral sort of campaign uh, for the original Cloverfield movie, wherein um, there were a series of news reports, uh, uh, you know, that aired as you know fake tra- you know fake fake news reports that served as like teaser trailers for Cloverfield detailing a an oil rig disaster, um, you know, showing the uh, this, this oil rig collapsing out in the uh, Atlantic Ocean uh, very suddenly, and they had a news report and news reporter talking to experts about like what might have happened and how a, a oil rig collapsed that quickly. Um, obviously, you know, it's the Cloverfield monster or whatever, but that was a same similar kind of example. Uh, more recently we've had, uh, there's a movie called Pontypool. Uh, it's a Canadian horror movie, uh, a kind of zombie movie, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess you call them zombies. Um, wherein the uh, main character, Stephen McCaddy is, uh, kind of reporting all this stuff. He's a DJ, radio DJ, and he's reporting all this stuff on air as it happens to him. Um, and then uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, a a movie on I think it's on Amazon called Vast of Night, where a lot of the a lot of the events are being captured and uh, disseminated through local radio. Um, and that one takes and the movie takes place like in the 1950s, I believe. So it would have been. Um, you know, you know, an appropriate device for people to be getting information of that kind. Um, you know, would get it through, you get the news through the radio. Uh, that was obviously, obviously very common at this point in time. Um, so it's it's it seems quaint now, and it's like a it's more of an, uh, a known entertainment device now. But it wouldn't really have been a known entertainment device at that point in time uh, to hear something coming through these much more otherwise at that point in time much more official channels. Certainly would have been shocking. Now, I think, you know, War of the Worlds, the book has been adapted multiple times into TV shows, multiple movies um, over the years. Um, you know, there's like the most famous ones probably from 1953, I believe. Um, and then more recently, obviously, Spielberg teamed up with Tom Cruise to do his War of the Worlds adaptation. And, well, I, I think... I, those those movies and TV shows. There was a TV show very recently, actually, um, uh, War of the Worlds TV show recently. I think it was from France. Um, but it, while those adaptations are adaptations of the original story, I think in every version that I've seen, what the adaptation is going for is to capture that sensation of panic that the original radio play produced in 1938. That sense of awe and wonder and like this has never been done before. It's, you know, obviously, again, they're adapting the same story. But I think the intent is to, I think the intent of the adaptations is to capture that sort of shock and confusion that would have happened to um, a segment of the population uh, in in the New York, New Jersey area in 1938. I think that's really what they're going for. They're not really trying to be faithful to H.G. Wells. They're trying to be faithful to Orson Welles. All right. Now, while Orson Welles uh, in the Mercury Theater's version um, did cause some panic and, and, you know, was a little bit overblown um, at that point in time and became more of a more of a piece of pop culture lore than um, than historical fact. There were some versions of this uh, of War of the Worlds that did cause real life panic, Um, significant panic and significant anger. So we're gonna we're gonna turn the clock ahead uh, just a few years. Uh, we're gonna go to 1949, and we're gonna go to Radio Quito's 
um, version, uh, Quito, Ecuador, Radio Quito's version of War of the Worlds that they put on in 1949. The panic and the outrage this time was real and it was vicious. This broadcast caused quite a bit of civil unrest. Um, There was a lot of panic in the streets of Quito and a nearby town. uh, I can't remember the town's name. Basically, it would have been a suburb of Quito. Um, And there was a lot of there were a lot of people panicked in the streets, um, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, Law enforcement was all over the place. It, It definitely was something that was. Um, it was definitely the, the, the panic that was purported to have happened in 1938, um, with Orson Welles's version was definitely happening, um, in, with Radio Quito's version, uh, just 11 years later, 1949. So this caught, again, this caused a lot of unrest. And when it was revealed that the broadcast was a hoax, an angry, an angry mob descended upon the El Comercio newspaper, um, in that building also housed the Radio Quito uh, headquarters. Um, the police tried to intervene. Uh, the people who, the producers uh, and the talent who put on the the play tried to apologize, and it did not matter. The angry mob destroyed the El Comercio newspaper building. They burned it to the ground, and 15 people died. Um Three of the people from the station were charged with creating a panic that resulted in death. Uh, the one of the men charged, who was like the the essentially the program director, Leonardo Paez, um, escaped Ecuador completely. Uh, he actually was so afraid for his life from the mob, and then obviously from the repercussions of being charged and convicted of a crime, that he uh, escaped to Venezuela and never returned to Ecuador. Um, so he completely avoided any sort of punishment from this, even though his girlfriend and his nephew were two of the victims that died in the fire that claimed uh, 13 other lives. 15 total people died, and a couple dozen were injured in this fire. Um, so, I mean, this was serious. This was, a, a, this, was, this was something that was, you know, that looking back at even just a few, you know, like I said, just 11 years earlier, the sort of panic caused by Orson Welles, um, is almost quaint compared to what happened in Ecuador. Um, but there is a reason as to why. So despite despite pleas from uh, several people who are working on getting this broadcast prepared for Halloween night, and these are, by, by the way, this all of these now by tradition are put on usually a Halloween night. Um, <clears throat> so despite pleas from other people that were working on the production, to put a disclaimer before the broadcast or even in the middle of the broadcast, whatever, um, Leonardo Paez decided not to. Um, Orson Welles, they they put on they they put on a uh, a disclaimer at the very beginning before they went into everything. Uh, a few years before this, there was also another version that um, in Chile, um, I think it was 1944, that caused some amount of panic. And a little bit of um, you know a little bit of public property damage, but they also had put on a um, they'd also put out a uh, you know a, a disclaimer prior to the broadcast that hey this is fictional we're doing our version of this you know blah 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 whatever, um, but in this case uh, Radio Quito did not put on uh, any kind of disclaimer, and to sort of further further sow the seeds of deception. Um, someone, they didn't really know who, but probably Leonardo, Leonardo Paez as well, um, 
had run had run fake stories in the El Comercio newspaper. Several fake stories that week leading up to uh, Halloween night about UFO sightings uh, in the area. So we had a real newspaper, an actual newspaper. So alongside of the real stories of, you know, whatever burglaries and fires and, uh, you know, you know, community, community uh, fundraising drives and that kind of stuff would have also had front page fake stories about UFO sightings in, in the area. So you can imagine then you had two very official channels um, in Ecuador in, in both the in both the um, you know the city newspaper, I will assume this is the, was, this was the big newspaper in Quito at the time, and also the single radio station that would have been the official radio station for Quito and I'll assume all of Ecuador um, were both in on the deception and not, giving anyone a heads up that this was in fact fake. So you can imagine the amount of distress this caused when, uh, you know, imagine two days prior, you're seeing, you're seeing stories about UFO sightings, um, again, right alongside the regular real news. And then on the radio, you're hearing about a, an alien invasion. Um, as stupid as it sounds to be fooled by that, it, it, you can imagine why people were so pissed off. Right, you can imagine why there was an angry mob. Did they need to burn down this building and kill all these people? No, they definitely did not. But you can imagine the amount of distress this caused people um, without any sort of without giving them the opportunity to have any sort of any sort of I should say they gave no opportunity for them to figure out that this was fake. Essentially, um, it wasn't like the the fake stories had a disclaimer in them. That hey, this is part of the this is part of the radio broadcast for War of the Worlds that we're that we're going to be doing this weekend for Halloween or whatever. No, essentially there was no emergency break for this, and this is what happened. This was the end result: uh, fifteen deaths, uh, a radio station and newspaper burned to the ground, and kind of general distrust in some of these uh, informational authority figures in Quito, Ecuador, back in nineteen forty nine. And so then we'll wrap this up with one of the more one of the cooler, more interesting versions of this. Um, and this is this is from uh, more from my neck of the woods. Uh, this was WKBW, uh, actually a client of mine. Uh, this is WKBW Buffalo, New York, 1968. Um, they put on a version of War of the Worlds, and this this definitely causes a bit of a panic. Um, no one died, fortunately. Um, but this, you know, not nearly out of, not anywhere near as out of control, uh, as Ecuador, uh, you know, just about 20 years earlier, but certainly there was a level of panic called, uh, caused, excuse me, by, uh, by this particular, uh, version of the radio play. Um, despite this, this, despite WKBW and their version and this version, they did in fact give a disclaimer, uh, before the broadcast began and actually kind of had like this whole um, ex- explainer and epilogue about uh, the story itself, the original play, and then they gave a disclaimer and then they went into the fake broadcast. And then in, and I, I can tell you, I, I listened to this. So even in the commercial breaks a couple of times, there's a disclaimer that they're doing their broadcast of War of the Worlds. However, despite those, uh, despite those uh, emergency breaks being there, um, this still caused a pretty good amount of panic. Several newspapers the next day from surrounding towns, like in uh, like in Dunkirk and um, and Hamburg and that area, uh, ran 
they ran um, full-blown stories about you know, the potential alien invasion that is happening on Grand Island, um, uh, which is like just north of Buffalo. Um, they, they reported that this WKBW's broadcast is factual. Several small town police departments went to into their kind of emergency management mode. Um, you know, they're making calls to the state of New York to find out what was happening. You know, they're, you know, it, over there in Erie County, they were they were trying to call the Erie County Sheriff. They were trying to figure out like what you know, like how how is this police department going to help out? How are we going to you know keep our people safe? They were telling people to shelter in place if they could get a hold of them. Even over in Canada, uh, Canada dispatched. Uh, a few armed units, a few armed military units to their side of the Peace Bridge, which connects uh, New York and Ontario. Um, this, I mean, this caused like a legitimate panic in the in the Buffalo and Western New York area. Um, you know, and, and this is, again, despite multiple disclaimers, um, despite the War of the Worlds at this point, you know, kind of being something that people in pop culture would have known about, it still caused a panic. And... You know, this was this and this was definitely a, a larger scale panic than uh, certainly not as large scale as what happened in Quito, Ecuador, but a larger scale panic than what happened uh, originally in New York, New Jersey, because WKBW was a huge radio station in the Great Lakes region at the time. This this reached a lot of people from, um, you know, from all the way from like the Finger Lakes region in New York. Excuse me, I had a cough there. Um, <clears throat> pretty much from, uh, you know, all the way through Pennsylvania to the Ohio border, uh, this radio station had a footprint. So there, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people heard this broadcast. Um, enough that, uh, you know, again, it just caused some level of unrest. You know, and what really sort of, as opposed to um, both the Mercury Theater one and the incident in Quito, Ecuador, what really helped sell this version as real, despite the disclaimers, is that there were no actors being used? This was the this was um, people from the WK, WKBW newsroom. This was um, a WKBW uh, disc jockey. All of these real people that um, that were known in the community and had been working at the radio station for several years were the people describing these things in detail. So even though there was the disclaimer their deception was using the real people to put this together instead of hiring actors to do it. And it comes across very convincingly, by the way. Um, but imagine sort of, you can imagine, again, if you somehow miss the disclaimer, you can imagine sort of the, at least some level of panic would set in hearing the WKBW news director die on air. Or, the, you know, one of the field reporters describe what it's, you know, describe people being killed by an alien force um, and you know and then getting news bulletins from one of the uh, one of the you know one of the radio station DJs um, telling you you know telling you to stop calling the radio station shelter in place that kind of stuff you can imagine that even if you managed to miss all of the all of the other signs that this was fake you can imagine how there would at least be some some seed of doubt in your mind that this might be actually happening, um, you know, based essentially just up the street from you at this point in time. So it's a really, it's a really great version of it. Um, I highly recommend you check out the WKBW version of this. Um, and that's what's, that's sort of what's really, really cool about all of these radio plays. Um, they are part of the public domain. Um, even there are even some that aren't explicitly a part of the public domain, but because they went out 
over public radio airwaves. Um, there is some version of these available online for free. And in many cases, it's the original version of these. Um, like I said, I listened to WKBW's version of this. It was absolutely fantastic. It was well done. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, like, they, they, cut out, they cut out some of the parts to, to chop it down a little bit in time. But, I mean, you're listening to... You're listening to a DJ go, you know, talk briefly about, um, you know, they're talk briefly about like an incident, something that happened on, on the surface of Mars. And, hey, wouldn't that be crazy if, uh, you know, making some joke, making light of it. And then they go right into a Beatles song and then they come out and, you know, the DJ will, again, give his little in-between song banter about something. And then, hey, we're going to go to commercial break. Real commercial comes on. Uh, you know, for, you know, for an actual place in Buffalo. And then they come back, a little more DJ banter. Boom, we're going right into uh, a Yardbird song. Like, it's pretty, pretty wild how WKBW's version was put together. Really, again, using all, utilizing all the real people and utilizing an actual broadcast setup. Um, And again, like, if you go online and look for a lot of these, you can find the original versions, which is wild. Um on YouTube, on Daily Motion, on Vimeo, whatever else, they're available there. And even if you can't find the originals, again, because a lot of these exist in the public domain, there are updated modern versions of these all over Spotify, all over, again, YouTube. You can find remakes of these. And I think, I honestly think this is worthwhile for everyone to check out because because of how popular um, audiobooks are and fictional podcasts are right now. I mean, that's just, that's all these are, are essentially are the, these are proto, um, you know, uh, these are the, these are, these are proto versions of modern fiction podcasts and modern fiction audiobooks. That's all these are. And in a lot of cases, they're pretty quick. Um, the, the condensed version of WKBWs is like an hour. There are some other versions of War of the Worlds and, other sci-fi radio plays and other radio plays in general that are as short as 15 minutes, you know, 30 minutes. They're very quick. They're really well done. The the ones, especially the WKBW's one, is very, very well done with sound effects. Again, the, the actual people that have been working at the newsroom, it's very, very well done. Um, but you can find some old versions of War of the Worlds that are really well done as well. Um, I'm sure if you were to go on Spotify, you could probably find a modern version that's like really hyped up and really awesome. So would highly recommend everyone check these out. In particular, check out some of the check out some of the real versions, the original versions for some of these radio plays if you can find them, science fiction or otherwise. Um, they're really cool. They're really um, it, this is actually something I've always wanted to do on the podcast. Do our version either of War of the Worlds or some other radio play because um, I think it remains a very a very cool way to deliver some entertainment, a very creative way to do some stuff. Um, so you know, I'm a big fan of these. I've always been a big fan of these. And I think, again, I think because of how, how, how fictional podcasts are booming right now and audiobooks have you know been popular for a very long time. I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that those people wouldn't also, and anyone out there that listens to those wouldn't be interested in listening to a classic radio play. All right, so that wraps this episode up. Like I said, this is a little a little quickie, a little mini episode. Uh, but we are going to come back uh, next week with a couple of episodes uh, as we dig into the different types of science fiction, some examples, some recommendations. Uh, that'll be coming next week. And then the week after, 
will be uh, we're actually going to talk about uh, some science fiction movies. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, like I said, I holstered that discussion uh, about early sci-fi cinema. We'll get to that uh, the following week as well. So next week, uh, so after, the, so once this comes up, uh, and next week, then we'll have uh, a discussion on the different types of sci-fi, the popular types of sci-fi right now, and some examples of all of them. And then, uh, like I said, the week after, movie stuff. Uh, but that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Uh, give us a rate and review. Uh, say something nice, nice about us on Instagram, share this with all your friends. And if you really feel in squirrely, give us money. I'm not really sure how, but you can just, you can just find me and you can Venmo me some cash or something. Um, I could always use money. I'm kidding. Not really. I could always use money, but until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. We'll see you later.